Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. We are now launching a new type of episode called Insights. Insights will feature clips taken from our regular longer episodes. We will pick segments from previous episodes which we find insightful, inspiring, critical, or simply worth sharing on their own. Our regular longer interviews will continue as usual, but we hope these Insight episodes will make some of the content more available. And the Insight episodes will appear in the same podcast feed along with the normal episodes, but they will be distinguished by the title, so it'll first say Insight and then the name of the person who is featured on that Insight episode from a previous podcast. This Insight episode is taken from podcast number 10 with Elena Finkbeiner. Elena works at Conservation International, where she is the Fisheries Science Program Manager at the Center for Oceans. Elena discusses reflexivity in the scientific process and then explains the usefulness of games or behavioral economic experiments with fishers in Mexico. I've been thinking a lot more via my participation in, say, our foreign study program in Southern Africa, really about the importance of being reflexive, you know, kind of through a kind of turning in of attention, you know, thinking about how do these concepts apply not just to the groups that I study, but to the groups I participate in. Is that something, is that a process that you've you've thought about and the importance of being reflexive? Because we all, we all study these groups, you know, we, we study collective action problems. You know, Stefan and I have talked a bit about collective action problems among scientists. Was that, was the development of this both combined bottom-up and top-down approach, which, you know, some people would kind of put under the rubric of co-management. Is that, did that kind of happen naturally? Or was it at least sometimes an explicit, explicit reference to, to, again, theory that you might have learned? Well, so that, that's not my doing, and I'm relatively new to CI. So, but I, 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 do, I do think about re- reflexivity a lot. And, you know, even before I came to CI in my own research, my PhD research, um, I became so accustomed to the framework in which you're supposed to do research, right? Which is you're at uni- your university, you develop your research questions, your methodologies, you review the literature, you write a proposal that has to be vetted with your PhD committee and your advisor. And then you go to the field and you, you know, ask those questions that you're interested in. Um, and you try and get answers with, um, if you're a social scientist with the local stakeholders and um, particularly with social science, this process really bugs me because, you know, you have your own sets of questions that are really interesting to you and that are vetted by your committee and that you get funded for. But what happens when you get to the field and you're engaging with local stakeholders, and even if it's folks with, that you've engaged with years before and you kind of have some idea or perception about what's important to them or what's necessary for them to sort of you know, what do they need support in helping to figure out? So even even so, a lot of times you get to the field and you realize, you know, they're really not worried about climate change today. It's actually this new, you know, government regime or right. it's actually the fact that the, the market is tanking right now. And so your research questions all of a sudden become completely irrelevant. <laughs> right. That's when you become inward and you sort of check yourself and for a while, I was I sort of had made up my mind that I never wanted to do research in the field again if I didn't actually develop my questions while I was in the field. But then, in, in the same vein, it's, it's really hard then to get funding that way or to get questions vetted by your PhD committee, you know? So it's really hard when you're approaching these issues as a social scientist and you want to do 
you want to do it in a way that's sensitive to what's locally relevant at that specific time and what will help, you know, folks the most on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the work I've done in the Dominican Republic. And I felt for a while that that work is, I mean, a lot of the, most of the value of that is essentially helping answer and fill local knowledge gaps as opposed to kind of moving some imagine some imagined big theoretical needle. Right. I mean, I suppose, you know, one response to this could be that within the NSF framework, you know, there are two main criteria that are supposed to cover these bases. One is intellectual merit and the other is like broader impacts. I don't suppose you have an opinion about how well those um, manage to address this tension or do you do you do you even or you do you agree with my kind of implicit statement that um, each of those kind of map onto these two different values? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, of course, intellectual merit, it's important for advancing our knowledge and science, mm -hmm. but it might not be important to what what is actually locally relevant in a certain system. Um, right broader impact, almost the same. Like, you know, like you said, it might be important advancing some super huge theoretical needle, but is that really necessary for improving the situation on the ground in that location? Most times it's not. <laughs> so but there, there isn't, you know, there isn't space in an NSF grant to talk about, you know, local relevance or, or anything like that. So yeah, that's an interesting point. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there could be potential to try to, you know, in, and there's a discourse about like how much these different attributes are weighed in the funding process. And maybe this is not something we want to, this is not a rabbit hole we want to spend the rest of the interview going down. Yeah, I mean, I could see trying to push towards though, like maybe the idea that local impacts are a part of broader impacts, right? Like this, mm -hmm. we are making a difference and and that really that this is just as important as, as the intellectual merit, even I know some people who have worried that the broader impacts is, is not given as much uh, weight. And I don't know enough to kind of really opine on it myself at the, at the current point, but Stefan, have you thought about the, yeah. in your own experience, have you thought about these issues? I was just thinking in some of the cases that I've worked on, particularly one in Indonesia where, you know, we, because we have a broader theoretical goal, like, as you said, to push a, a bigger theoretical needle forward, even if only in micro steps, uh, we often select case studies in places because they're interesting us, interesting to us from that broader theoretical perspective, not necessarily because they're really grounded in the actual problems, like you said, that are in those communities. But on the other hand, you often don't know that in advance, even if it's a community that you've been to in the past and you had a good understanding of what was happening there. Like you were saying, you know, the, the market of that year or the new political regime of that uh, just happened last month or last week might completely change it so i don't know how you how you solve that that that's like a we have this need for planning our projects in advance uh partially for funding partially for our own maybe sanity that we have comfort and that we can what we're going to do is is rigorous for example um and well supported at least from an academic perspective but you know what is that balance between adaptability and in, in the context and making it kind of more diagnostic where you ask kind of series of more contextually re relevant questions as you go forward. It is interesting. It reminds me of the textbooks that I read in grad school about case studies and case selection. And you, I don't remember ever ha having a, a criterion being kind of practical relevance, right? It was all kind of how do you actually use case studies to generate theory? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Do you, are you picking a random subset? Are you picking the extremes? Yeah. So, Elena, with some of the time we have left, I'd love to switch to a topic that I talked to you a fair amount about the last time I saw you, 
which is about games, kind of end on a high note. So I, the last interview um, that I did for this podcast was, was with uh, Juan Camilo Cardenas down at the Commons Conference in Lima. So we talked a lot about games and their role in science, et cetera. He's one of my heroes. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. I mean, he's just a lot of fun to talk to about many things. And one of the themes that came up was kind of the use of games, uh, not just to generate scientific knowledge, but as interventions in, in themselves to try to change behavior. I would just be interested in hearing about your thoughts about maybe methods generally, um, but the relationship between kind of some of the more traditional methods that a lot of us have used, surveys, you know, collecting lots of data at the household or individual level, running some regressions or whatever we do with those versus maybe what you call more participatory methods, games, et cetera, how that process of moving from one to the other worked for you and maybe whether or not you're interested or are doing stuff like that at CI. Yeah. So prior to, you know, my, my experience with Juan Camilo designing um, uh, economic experiments uh, in the field in Mexico, I had, I had mostly done in terms of social science research, I had done surveys, interviews, and focus groups. Um, which they, they have a lot of value to them, but they're also really difficult for me. I don't know what it is about approaching someone and asking to take not just their, their time, right? There's an opportunity cost to every interview and survey you do with another person. So you're asking to take their time, but also, also their knowledge and um, whether or not they they ever get anything back from it, and you never really know. And so I don't know. I just always had a really hard time with with the survey and interview style of research. And then I I also would get really bad survey fatigue. I don't know if you yeah definitely your hundred thirty fifth you know survey asking the same question. You just you know you'd rather not. <laughs> hard to get super excited about number one through five. Yeah. yeah. So when this opportunity came up to use this whole different style of research, um, game theory or behavioral economic experiments, I got super excited. Um, and so, you know, for folks that don't know, basically game theory or economic experiments allows you to test assumptions about human behavior and decisions in a really controlled environment. Um, and increasingly so, People are, are using um, game theory, not just in labs and classrooms, but in the field with real stakeholders. So that, that's what I did. You know, it was really fun. We, were, we played a series of common pool resource games with fishers um, in Mexico. And we were asking the question, how does harvesting or fishing behavior change as the resource gets increasingly uncertain? uncertain. The availability of the resource gets increasingly uncertain. So if you add uncertainty, you know, to um, to a hypothetical uh, stock of we, we, we played the game with a hypothetical stock of abalone. If the availability of those abalone were increasingly uncertain, would fishers fish more or less? You know, would they be incentivized to fish more because the weight of tomorrow is is insufficient or would right. they decide to refrain from, from fishing in order to sort of counteract those, those forces of change and uncertainty? Turns out they did the latter, which was really cool and surprising. Um, and I just, I had a really fun time doing experiments uh, with fishers. They were actually compensated um, for playing the game. So every abalone that they decided to harvest during the game, they got real compensation for. And so I know they had a lot of fun doing it as well. 
Um, and I think it just provides a really useful tool to look at how human behavior changes, right, in a controlled setting um, in response to these different treatments. And I think when you couple game, uh, game theory with surveys, so we did exit surveys for everyone that played our games, you get at the how human behavior changes um, in response to certain treatments, and you also can get at why if you combine them with, with answers or responses to surveys. So that was, that was a really cool um, experience for me. And then in terms of your, your first question about the role of, of game theory um, and more of like a strategic and, and learning um, sense, there's been a lot of um, speculation about whether or not doing these um, behavioral economic experiments in the field with real stakeholders provides more of a pedagogical role and that it allows uh, these stakeholders or participants to reflect on decisions they're making on a daily basis, but really reflect on them in a strategic environment and not just individually, but with one another. So for example, at the end of the games that we played with the Fishers, we would have a group discussion where everyone would reflect on the decisions they made and why it was really cool to watch them uh, reflect, but also question each other, you know, push each other and then collectively as a group decide on, you know, what was right or what was wrong and, you know, what they would do in the future. And, um, I, I, I definitely think that there, there, there is a, a role in doing these behavioral economic experiments beyond that, just a, beyond just research, mm. um, but in, in providing a strategic learning environment for the participants and the researchers. I mean, it kind of relates to what we were talking about earlier, right? That there's these different values that sometimes are seen as being competing. Like, do we try to generate fundamental knowledge or do we try to practically engage with the world? And it sounds like maybe we're kind of able to have our cake and eat it too if we do this well. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And is this something you're interested in continuing to try to do? Oh, yeah. I'm, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have all these ideas in my head of, of you know, what I want to do next with um, behavioral economic experiments. Um, I just need to find the funding. <laughs> sure. Okay. But, yeah. I had a question following up on that. Do, do any of those discussions that you have with the, the fishers afterwards, do you talk to them about the, the practical changes which would happen in the fishery and how they might make those same type of decisions or not uh, in a real fishing situation with speculation that there might be change in the fishery going forward, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the conversation wasn't necessarily talking about potential future change in the fishery, but change that they had experienced in the past. Um, and actually, this is one of the factors that we looked at. And so the more the more that fishers had to deal with change and uncertainty in the past in their real lives, the more conservative their behavior was in the game, which was super interesting um, because they, had, they already had undergone some sort of social learning in the past. Right. based on their experience, experiences with resource change and decline that informed the way that they played the game. Um, so That's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it was really interesting. So there was a lot of discussion around, you know, how the game really emulated the real-life situations that they face and that they have faced, and that, that they decided to make decisions in the game based on what they saw worked in the past in real life. 
there was, there was a lot of connections being made between uh, the behaviors in the game and then also real life decisions, which was interesting. If you enjoyed this insight episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, you can listen to full interviews with all of our guests in the podcast feed. You can also find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, and can be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website. Thank you for supporting the podcast.